Well, let's turn together once again this evening to 1 Peter. We're continuing with our studies in the letter of Peter, the first letter of Peter. And uh, tonight we're looking at verses 6 to 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now we've noticed how Peter is building up uh, layers of teaching or of doctrine, especially there from verse 3, although we saw some of that in the previous verses as well, uh, when he's mentioning about them being God's chosen people. Uh, and then verse 3 uh, we have these great doctrines of uh, uh, God having brought his people to a living hope, how that is united to or anchored in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And then we saw the inheritance that's mentioned there as that towards which they have been saved or been brought to this living hope, that it's towards or to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled and unfading, which is kept in heaven. And we looked as well at God's kept people for that kept inheritance, that they are kept by the power of God through faith, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now you need to take these great doctrines with you into these verses we're looking at this evening, because they're very much bringing us into the personal circumstances of those people that Peter was writing to, and of many, if not most, of Christians in the world in every generation. So he's really saying, here are these great layers of teaching these, these crucial doctrines, though there are many others in the letter will come to God willing, but those meantime, what he's really saying to them is, now I've told you this, I've brought you to consider who you are, what God has done, and the living hope that you have. Take that with you now into your circumstances, and think of those circumstances against the background of these doctrines, or put it another way, take these doctrines with you into your circumstances and let that really be what informs your thinking and forms your conclusions as to your present situation. And it reminds us that uh, doctrine, as, you buy, as the Bible brings us these great teachings of the faith, None of these doctrines, not even the greatest doctrines of the Bible, are there so that we can leave them independent of our everyday lives. They are there for our everyday living, for our everyday use. Uh, in other words, when you go to school tomorrow, or when you go to work tomorrow, or whatever it is you're doing tomorrow, you don't do it without taking the resurrection of Christ with you, without your thoughts about being God's chosen people with you, uh, without taking this living hope with you that God has caused to be born again in the, in the experience of those that he has come to uh, bring to that knowledge of himself. So all of these doctrines, it's really a reminder to us that this is really what we need in our everyday life so that our lives are both garrisoned and also strengthened and nourished through these great doctrines of the faith. And what he's telling us here is that um, these doctrines are brought into their circumstances, as he writes to them, in their grievous 
and difficult and heavy circumstances. Uh, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So two things. Firstly, the present trials that Christian have, uh, Christians have in this life, because of course this is applicable to us, uh, as well as it was to those original receivers of Peter's letter. The present trials that Christians experience in this life. And then secondly, the purpose of these trials, as Peter here mentions it, it is so that the tested genuineness of your faith might be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the word trial there in verse 6, you rejoice, uh, you have been grieved by various trials. The word trials there, in the old translation it was uh, uh, temptations or testing, and that really is what it means. It means trials or testings. Um, it's different, uh, dif different to actual uh, temptation itself, which comes, uh, of course, from Satan, from the evil one. Um, and if you go to James, just the previous letter there in the first uh, chapter of James, he really begins his, his letter there, if you followed with me uh, there in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, almost exactly the same language, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and so on. And you'll find other places uh, we'll maybe mention one or two tonight as well, like Romans chapter 8, where we've read just a, a short time ago of the trials that God's people have in the present sufferings of this life. Well, the trials are really testings, but the element of temptation is never really far away uh, in the thinking of the apostles of the Bible, because when you think about testings that come our way, these are trials and difficulties that come upon uh, all who are Christians, as well as other people in the world, of course. Uh, but the devil actually can um, really just log on to that, if you like, and seek to spoil our peace and bring us a sense of, uh, of um, disquiet and uh, even uh, come uh, to persuade us that perhaps we're not Christians at all if certain things like that are in our lives. So the element of temptation is never far away from the testings and the trials that we undergo. But it's on the testings, the trial itself, that Peter is really giving his thoughts at this time, focusing his thoughts. Now, the first thing about the trials, the present trials, is that they are various. Notice what he's saying. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little time, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You may think that's not terribly important, but actually it is because it means that these trials are of a whole lot of different kinds and have a very considerable variety to them. They're not all of the same kind. Some of these trials are physical, some of them will be mental, some of them psychological, some of them will entail losses, bereavement, sorrow, the things that cause us uh, that sort of pain, uh, worrying about uh, other people, families, different problems like that. Virtually every kind of circumstance in life can prove and very often proves to be a trial or a testing of our faith. 
That's really what he's focusing on here, the variety of trials that these Christians are experiencing. They are under persecution. They're being mistreated, as we saw earlier, and as we'll see throughout the epistle. But it's a whole variety of trials that that really makes up for them. In other words, no Christian can say that he or she is exempt from any particular trial necessarily. God's people are not exempt from trials that other people have in the world. There's a variety of suffering, a variety of trials, a variety of testings that God himself in his providence brings us into, in his wisdom and in relation to our faith. So the first thing is, it's a variety of trials. You have been tried, you're being tried, you're being tested by various trials or testings. The second thing is that this trial or these trials are painful. They're painful. And Peter really wants to point that out. Of course, those he's writing to know that. But he wants them to know that he appreciates that. That they are going through these difficulties uh, as uh, experiences of pain. He says... Um, um, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And if you go back to the older translation, uh, you've been put to grief, is what it says, and the AV uses the word heaviness. And there's that idea in the way that Peter is using this language here is not just generally referring to trials and to various kinds of trials, but he's really taking in the effect of that on their lives. They are in heaviness. And you think of the various trials that you yourself know of, even so far in your life as you've experienced them. And there's a great variety of trials and of experiences here before me this evening. This congregation itself, given the size of it, will have such a huge variety of experience and of trials and of different kinds of things that cause heaviness and pain. And think of the things we've mentioned, the, the losses, the uh, psychological blows, the unexpected events, the, the mental stress, the physical pain, the illnesses, the anxieties. Well, all of these themselves can so readily and so easily be a heaviness upon us. They can be crushing on our spirits. And Peter appreciates that. And the Lord doesn't hide us, uh, hide these facts from us uh, when he actually spells out for us in the Bible what being a Christian is about, what the way of following Christ entails. You are in heaviness through various testing. It's painful. They're being weighed down. And that pain sometimes can be very acute. The Lord doesn't bring us into a, a living hope so as to avoid trials. Indeed, that's when our living hope really comes, as it were, alive more than anywhere else. That living hope of God's people is a living hope that uh, is itself active, very much active in these trials, these temptations, these testings. There's no bypass round the trials for a Christian. But there is a lot um, in the trials with them of the Lord's own power and the Lord's own direction, as we'll see. 
So there are various trials, and there are also painful trials. And then he comes to two rather remarkable things he says about them. Firstly, that uh, the third thing he says about these present trials, they're various, they're painful, but they're short-lived. See, he's saying here, um, though now, for a little while, or for a season, as does Navy, uh, for a little while you have been grieved or being grieved by various trials. Now, how can he say this? How can he say this little while is short-lived? How can it be short-lived? What if a person really goes through most of their lives as a Christian and lives to a good old age and knows of many trials and various trials in the course of that life? How can, they, how can Peter be saying this is short-lived? Uh, how can he be saying it's short-lived when sometimes it really feels, as your soul sometimes feels crushed under the trials that you're undergoing and the pain that you're experiencing? How can it be short-lived when it feels so long? Well, of course, it's short-lived against what he's been saying earlier, this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's kept in heaven for you. It's short-lived in comparison with the eternity that is awaiting these chosen people of God. Or to put it in Paul's words in Second Corinthians, our light affliction, which is but for a moment which is but short-lived, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look at the things, not with the things which are seen, which are temporal, but at the things which are unseen and eternal. In other words, Peter is saying, here is what you and I must uh, be exercised about in our trials. They may feel very long, and sometimes like the psalmist, though... Weeping may endure for a night, and sometimes the night is just, not just literally one night in, a, in a, a timely sense. The night of the soul, the night of uh, pain, the night of, of uh, weeping, the night of uh, bereavement, the night of experiencing the loss, the night of, the, the night of having to adjust to things that you would never want to have in your life experiences you would never want to undergo, that you would never yourself have chosen, maybe a very, very long night in terms of the pain that's there and the ongoing agony of soul that seeks and wants to come to terms with but finds it so difficult. Well, Peter is saying, this is one of the things that you must do. You must see it in the light of what's awaiting you. You must see it in the light of the certain inheritance that's being kept, that's reserved in heaven for you. You must see it in the light of the fact that you are being kept with regard to that inheritance. It's a kept inheritance for God's kept people. And when you begin to look at it like that, you actually bring something into your present sufferings that helps you through them. It doesn't mean they go away. It doesn't mean the pain really recedes that you hardly feel it at all. It means that God is teaching us to look with a long look towards the horizon. And just to take in very carefully what he has placed on that horizon, this glorious inheritance that, that is kept for God's people and the fact that they're kept for it. You know, when you're uh, uh, taking photos sometimes with a, a telephoto lens, if it's a long lens, and you're taking that photo, and let's say you're just looking across the Minch to the mainland, 
with the mountains in the background. It's uh, quite a long distance as you see it with your natural eye and with a shorter lens it really just looks pretty much the same. But with a longer lens, if you're looking at a ship, let's say just out from the coast there, uh, and you're focusing with your long lens on the ship, you'll notice then uh, when you've taken the photo that actually it's brought the mainland, as it were, much closer to you as well. Because the telephoto really uh, brings the background further forward in the photograph, though of course not in reality. And what Peter is really saying is that here is what God's people must seek to do by his help, to use that telephoto lens of your faith, he's saying, draw that inheritance towards you. Bring it into your present experience. Let it soak into your soul that this is what you're being prepared for. And that these, these sufferings, these trials, these difficulties, as Paul put it to the Corinthians, are themselves in a mysterious but God-directed way, they are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And that's why Paul, as we, as we read in, uh, in Romans chapter 8, is able to say, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's really the same as the inheritance or the occupancy of that inheritance. What Paul is doing there in Romans 8 is saying, here is my, here my, is my set of balances, my, my scales. And on the one side of the scales, if you think of the old-fashioned balances, I am putting the weight of these present sufferings. Right? And the balances go right down and just hit the table. But then he says, I'm going to put on the other side the weight of the glory that awaits us, that's going to be revealed in us, the weight of this inheritance that's kept in heaven for us in Peter's words. And what happens to the balances? It goes the other way. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory, to the weight of glory, to the significance of glory that shall be revealed. And that's why Peter is able to say, it's for a little while. The little while may feel very long. It may seem so protracted, you wonder at times, will I get through? Is there light at the end of this tunnel? But there's the light. There's the end of the tunnel in this inheritance. There it is on the horizon, and by faith you draw it close to you. With your telephoto faith, it brings it into very much nearer to your and into your present circumstances. And it helps you to focus on what this is about, that it is something short-lived and for eternity. But the fourth thing he says about the present trials, we need to move on quickly, is that in this you rejoice. Notice what he's saying there in verse 6. In this you rejoice. Now, how can that be? If it's difficult enough to see how they can be short-lived, and you can see that in relation to eternity, in relation to the everlasting inheritance, yes, of course they're short-lived. Life in this world is but just a tiny segment compared to eternity. But how can he say that you rejoice in your present circumstances? Is this not a contradiction? How can that possibly be? Well, um, there are various ways of looking at it, but I think when he says, in this you rejoice, he's not dealing with 
the sufferings themselves, because that would be a contradiction. Um, but what he's saying is, in this, in this what I've just said to you, in this matter of being born again to a living hope, in this matter of being re uh, united to Christ's resurrection, in this matter of this inheritance being kept for you, and you being kept for it, you rejoice. You're able to actually have gladness of soul even in the midst of your sufferings. Uh, don't misunderstand this, because this is not saying that uh, as you appreciate this, all the sufferings go away and all the pain go away. And... Uh, you don't fall into line with that idea of Christianity that is really pretty much all about nice feelings. Or that idea of Christianity that really says God doesn't want you to have any suffering in your life. And suffering is bad for you. And so you need to go to people who claim to be apostles and they send you some fancy stuff so that God will remove the sufferings from your life and make you rich and really make you happy. That's not the Christianity of the Bible. That's a distortion. And it's a handful distortion. Because this Christianity of the Bible, as in this passage is saying, yes, sufferings are so difficult. They can be so protracted. They're really testings of our faith. But they are nevertheless circumstances that uh, enable you to have rejoicing in what belongs to you. Even though presently the going is hard and the struggles are tough. Because what belongs to you is nothing less than what Peter has described as you're a Christian. So you're seeing beyond that horizon. Nothing wrong with having good feelings. But that's not what Christianity consists of primarily. Because even the sufferings and the uh, heaviness, this being grieved by the trials, that has its positive emphasis in God's hands. And... Uh, it reminds us too, you see, that what must regulate our souls, what must regulate our thinking, our attitude, and our conclusions is not our feelings. And it's not uh, how we feel about certain things, whether they are painful or otherwise. What must regulate my mind and your mind as Christians is God's truth. It's truth that regulates the mind. And that means that um, if you take the question, if you widen this out, let's just, just widen it out to uh, the question that you often are confronted with. How can God be a God of love when so much suffering exists in the world? When he could, people will say, change that in an instance, but he chooses not to. How can you say to me that he's a God of love? You can take it out with the sufferings of the Christian to the sufferings of the world, to everybody to the circumstances of human life in its width and generality. How can God be a God of love? Well, of course, that needs far more than we're able to give it of an answer this evening. But let me say this. One thing that's absolutely crucial in answering it is to say that all depends on what you mean by love. Because if you think that God's love is just simply a soft cushy feeling, then you're really mistaken because God's love includes the way he handles suffering for his people and for the benefit of his people. And in C.S. Lewis, in his great book, The Problem of Pain, um, this is what he says. 
The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. Man does not exist for the sake of man. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created, he quotes. And he says this, We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. Now that's a transforming thought, I suggest. We were not made, he says, not primarily, we are made not primarily that we may love God, but so that God may love us. And if you take that with you into the sufferings of God's people, the issue then is, how much more can I love God through this? It's not, uh, how much more can I love God through this? How much can these circumstances enable me or how can I love God more through or because of these circumstances? That's not the question or not the main question, although that's not uh, a question detached from it. The main question is this, how can I experience more of the love of God through this? How can I experience the love of God towards me in these circumstances? Because that's really what God is about. God is about loving his people. And even in these trying circumstances, as Peter is saying to them, they are to rejoice because they are under the love and the provision of God. And the sufferings that they are enduring, the sufferings they're experiencing, is not contrary to that love. It's part of its outworking. It's part of God's wisdom dealing with them and preparing them for the inheritance that's kept for them. In other words, they are being kept even by means at times of these sufferings as God uses them in their lives. Now let's put that together, the present trials. There are various trials, there are painful trials, there are short-lived trials, but there are trials in the midst of which they can rejoice in what God has already provided for them and what they are and who they are as God gives them to look forward to that horizon. The present trials, the purpose then of these trials. Let me see if I can do this in a few minutes. He says, if necessary. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. And he's not saying if necessary in a way that questions whether or not it's necessary. You mustn't think that if here means, well, maybe they're necessary and maybe they're not. It really means they are necessary. They are necessary. They are indispensable in God's dealings with his people and God's preparing them for this inheritance. Now, of course, that's one of the questions, isn't it, that comes up when we're experiencing trial and pain and suffering as Christians. We often perhaps find these questions such as why, not so much maybe why it's necessary, but why this particular one is necessary. And why should it be this hard? 
And why should I have to go through this when it appears that others don't as Christians? Why? Well, here is Peter saying, they are necessary because God in his wisdom measures whatever it is we have to experience in this life towards this inheritance. John Owen has a great illustration in one of his writings where he compares the exact same experience of suffering in the person who trusts in God and in a person who dismisses God and doesn't live by faith in God at all. Now he says, they are exactly the same set of circumstances if you imagine that. But what's the difference? Well, the difference, he says, is this. In the person who is a believer and trusting in God, these sufferings are like a surgeon using them as bandages, dealing with them in their own needs and in their soul so that eventually and ultimately they come out from them made whole, absolutely healthy, spiritually, morally, when they are ready to go to glory. But he says, take the other person. The same set of circumstances, the same sufferings. But in that case, he says, it's like an executioner just putting the bandage round the head of the person about to be executed and leading them out to the scaffold. And that's a graphic illustration, but think of it this way. The sufferings of God's people are preparing them for a glorious, peaceful inheritance with Christ. The same sufferings in someone who dismisses God are a foretaste of hell. They are just the precursor, the preparation for unending suffering in a lost eternity. You see the difference? Now how vital it is for me tonight and for you to have faith in Christ. To have a faith that realizes that though we don't understand all our sufferings or anything like it, we understand that God is using them. That they are necessary in the experience of Christians as God uses them. That they have an outcome of their own as God uses them in the purifying of life. In the purifying of that Christian life. They are necessary, he says. And then he brings in this wonderful imagery of the crucible, that uh, vessel in the old days where you had metals actually put to the test and purified. How do you actually purify gold in the days that Peter was living anyway? And sometimes, uh, of course, it's still the same, essentially. You put it into a vessel and you heat it. And you heat it and you go on heating it until all the impurities, the dross, is burned off. And you're left with nothing but the pure gold. And Peter is saying that, in a sense, spiritually, is what God is doing in terms of these sufferings of his people, these trials, this heaviness, uh, this grievous experience that you're going through. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, or your faith will be found to be genuine, though it is tested by fire as gold, may be found to result in praise and honor, a glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, think just, for example, of Job. A man in the Old Testament who suffered more than anybody else who's brought before us in the teaching of the Bible. And in chapter 23 of Job, 
He says, Today is my complaint bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that's God, that I might come to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. He's saying, seeking God in the midst of his troubles. He lost uh, members of his family. He lost his livelihood. Um, he lost his health. Virtually everything he had in terms of this life he lost. And this is now where he's searching for God and searching for meaning, searching for an answer in this uh, heaviness that's come upon him. And of course we know from the early part of, of Job that the devil's strategy as he's tacked on to these circumstances is, as indeed came through the mouth of Job's wife, curse God and die. In other words, she was saying to him, as an instrument of the devil, surely you're not going to go on trusting in this God of yours now. Surely your circumstances mean you're just going to be done with this. Surely you're going to say to God, I can't be bothered with this anymore. I don't want any more of you. And in that same chapter 23, Job goes on and comes to say this. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Far from capitulating to the devil and his plan and his strategy, he actually comes to the opposite to realize that God knows what he's doing even if he doesn't. And at the end of the process, he will be a pure believer and God will have put him through the tests whereby his faith is being refined. And you can uh, find examples of that elsewhere as well. There are uh, plants and trees in, in nature that are given the name of uh, pyrophytic plants or trees. And that really means that they cast their seeds um, when a fire breaks out and through intense heat. Uh, they're usually relatives of, of pine trees or eucalyptus trees as well, I think some of them are involved. But what happens is this, that their cones or the pods containing the seeds are contain, contain a very heavy resin rounded, um, uh, a very heavy resin round the, the pod that contains the seeds. And it requires the intense heat of a fire burst that open so the seeds are scattered. And you can actually see photos. If you Google this, you'll see it, um, um, where you'll find lush, uh, lush ground, a long, uh, a large field with, with lush green growth. And sticking out of it are these long, like, telegraph poles, blackened. And that's the original trees that were burnt in the fire. And when they were burnt in the fire, bang! The pods opened and seeds were scattered for new growth. And really, Peter is saying essentially, spiritually, uh, that's in a sense what happens. And what's happening to these people, he's writing to, the tested genuineness of their faith as they are being put through these tests. So it's just like that pod that's ready for scattering its seeds. And sometimes in this world, um, you'll, find, uh, you'll find film of this as well. Uh, it may take something like 10 or more years and these pods are just lying there closed. 
and nothing's happening. And then a fire breaks out. And as the fire envelops that tree, bang goes the pod and the seeds are scattered. And the fires of our testings in this life can be very, very heated, very difficult to contend with, very difficult to endure. But we're being assured that the successful outcome of it is this, that this genuine faith, tested and found to be genuine, may be found to result in praise and honor, and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think he means by that both, uh, well, primarily, praise, glory, and honor to Christ himself. As well as being uh, honor and glory to us who are uh, being purified by the fires of testing in this life. If you're anywhere in the vicinity of Perth, you've probably, most of you maybe have been here before, there's a factory there that produces Caithness glass uh, paperweights particularly there are other objects as well but they're mostly paperweights and when you get there you can actually go on a tour of the factory there um, and you're introduced first of all to where the initial work is being done where you find these skillful uh, workers of glass on a long long pole they take a blob of glass that's just molten on the end of their pole uh, having had it in the fire they take it out the fire and then they start working on it, they plunge it into water, they actually rub it through with various cloths and kinds of paper to bring it into shape. They actually put wonderful other colors into it at times, and then they put it back in the fire, and out it comes again. And the process then is really uh, all the way through until you get closer to where the showroom is. And when you get to the showroom, you'll find all these wonderful polished objects, these beautiful glass um, paperweights with all these striking colors and the lights from the shelves as they're lit up it's just absolutely stunning and you say to yourself is that really what I saw being put into the fire can it be the same thing yes it is because that's how it is with God's people with the testing that God puts them through this world is the workshop. The showroom is upstairs. But you don't understand the showroom until you first understand the workshop. And the workshop contains the testings that lead to the showroom where the final glorified people of God shine most perfectly on the glass shelves of heaven, if you like. Now then, am I a Christian tonight? Am I in Christ tonight? Am I amongst these blessed people who have suffering working for them? Am I really in the position of having this living hope in the midst of my present trials? Am I the kind of person who through faith is able to draw the horizon of eternity near me and say, that gives me a measure of comfort? Are you in Christ tonight? Are you born again to a living hope? Do you have this prospect that after this world is done, 
you'll be found in God's showroom. There's another place downstairs as well. Not a nice place. Not a place you ever want to go to. It's the opposite of the showroom. It's all to do with ugliness and pain and torment and the company of devils and blasphemous outrage against God. It's what the Bible calls hell. And it's important to mention it and never to leave it out of our thoughts or our preaching. But it's also important to mention it in comparison to heaven. Because what we as preachers of the gospel urge you is not so much to avoid hell, but to gain heaven. Because if you set your heart on heaven, you will not end up in hell. You'll be a splendid, shining object and trophy of God's grace for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord our God, we pray that as we know from your word these great issues of life and death, and as we learn of how you deal with your people even through the sufferings that you bring into their providence, we pray, gracious one, that each of us who knows of these elements of the gospel will be found tonight in a right relationship with you. Deal with us, Lord, in your patience and kindness, we pray. Help us, we pray, in the stubbornness of our heart to accept your will and to accept that your will be done. And grant that we may know that as we are assured of the truth of your word, so grant that we may be assured of our place in your kingdom. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we'll conclude our uh, service this evening uh, singing in Psalm number 66. Psalm number 66. We're singing verses 8 to 13 and the tune of Zurich. That's on page 83. O people's trust, uh, praise our God. His praise and song repeat. He has preserved our soul alive from slipping, kept our feet. Psalm 66, verses 8 through to 13, to God's praise. O people's praise our God, his praise and song repeat. He has preserved our soul alive from slipping, kept our feet. You tested us, O God, as silver is refined. You laid sore burdens on our backs in Yet you 
to the main door after the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen.